Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Holy Crap, It's Sports. Another episode, episode 10 for a Tuesday afternoon, April 23rd, 2019, coming to you live from the Palatial Studios in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Got a lot to talk about today. Is it time for Bryce Harper to grow up? <laughs> By the way, my name is Pete Davis. Numbers nerds don't love baseball. You know who I'm talking about. Will two grand slams in the same inning ever happen again? Barry Zito and the A's show why California has gone bloody insane. News on Matt Kemp, Josh Donaldson, Jose Abreu, Nick Birdie, and Nathan Evaldi, among others, and this day in baseball history. So let's get started. By the way, you can always reach me, follow me on Twitter at Pete Davis One. That's number one, or Pete Davis One at Yahoo.com if you want to write with the pros and cons, and I'll talk about your cards and letters on the air. Anyway, let's get started, because I don't know if you saw the um, Phillies-Mets game yesterday on a Monday, but nobody looks better when they get ejected from a game than Bryce Harper and that head of lettuce he's got going. Harper ejected for the 12th time in his career in the Phillies' 5-1 to loss to the Mets. It came four batters after Harper had been called out on strikes in the top of the fourth inning. Like a carefully crafted movie script, he let the tension build until the moment called for some action. Uh, He let Phillies manager Gabe Kapler spring first out of the dugout, creating added tension and confusion as to what exactly was going on. Harper, in his fury to charge after umpire Mark Carlson, then slipped on the dugout steps, which could have been disastrous for him in the Phillies because of freak injury. Could have happened, but it did not. They got lucky. Kapler shoved him out of the way after Harper kind of shoved him in order to get to Carlson. Again, maybe a lucky break for the Phillies, given that Kapler may be the only manager in baseball that could push Bryce Harper out of the way of something. And then Harper went out with a blaze of glory, continuing to yell and point toward Carlson, the umpire, with his magnificently coiffed hair on full display. By the way, I didn't write that. The gentleman did and uh, on ESPN. I forget his name. Anyway, it's not all fun and games when you lose your number three hitter midway through what was a two-to-one game against a key division opponent. Harper admitted as much after the game, saying he just can't let that happen. Well, he's not the only one, and it's about time another teammate has stood up on the Phillies. I know a couple that did on the Nationals, but now he's on the Phillies. Teammate Jake Arrieta, who picked up the loss in the game, admonished Harper after the contest saying we need him in right field I don't care how bad the umpire is he wasn't great for either side I'm out there trying to make pitches he misses some calls so what we need Bryce out there he's right of course Harper isn't new to ejections among active players only Matt Kemp has more more on Kemp later Kemp has 14 Kemp reached the major six years before Harper Yunel Escobar is third on the active list with nine. Bryce Harper's 12 ejections have come from 12 different umpires. So he spreads it around a little bit. He spreads a lot of stuff around. The first one was back in uh, 2012 against the maybe the either the first or the second worst umpire in baseball, C.B. Buckner. There was a call at first base, and Bryce threw his helmet. And then in 2013, John Hirschbeck threw him out because uh, there was a checked swing and Bryce threw his bat and his helmet. Also 2013, Hunter Windelstadt tossed him on a called third strike. 2015, so he took 14 off. Rob Drake, the umpire, tossed him on a checked swing. 2015, he had a good year. Three times he was thrown out in 15. Marvin Hudson tossed him with balls and strikes. Also in 15, Jerry Mills, a called third strike, set him 
them off. In 2016, he had two ejections, one from Brian Knight on balls and strikes, the other from Mike Winters on a called third strike, and Bryce slammed his bat. He had two in 2017, the first one from Brian Gorman. He was fighting and he threw his helmet. Also, Chris Siegel tossed him on balls and strikes. 2018, just one. DJ Rayburn, the umpire, threw him out on a called third strike. And his final one yesterday, 2019, Mark Carlson arguing balls and strikes from the dugout. Harper isn't a young kid anymore. He's in his eighth season in the majors. He knows questionable calls are part of the game, and the two in the fourth inning weren't even that questionable. As one of the expected leaders of the Phillies, Harper cannot allow himself to cross the line or give an ump the excuse to send him to the showers early. That's just the way it is. And he says he knows this. I have to stay in the game for the organization and the fans. I have to do better, Bryce Harper says. Look, as someone who basically would rather see the Braves win, I don't care what he does, but he needs to shape up if he's going to um, be one of the leaders in the faces of the game. He's got, just got to learn to be a little more mature. On to subject number two, Jason Stark, the great writer and uh, ESPN guy, pointed this out on Twitter today. The no-hitter is dying for reasons that make perfect sense but no sense at all. Pitch counts make sense. Protecting pitchers makes sense. Caring about tomorrow makes sense. But plunging a flaming sword through the heart of a baseball and baseball lore? Not so much. What's he talking about? No hitters. Jason went on to say in another tweet, when brilliant people uncover secrets to propel their sport forward in ways that haven't been hidden for 125 years, we applaud them and why wouldn't we? But not all the science, all the math, all the brilliant thinking is good for the entertainment portion of this business. Here, here. Where's the joy? You know, these players are going to be such automatons and aren't going to be able to even think out there. Paralysis by analysis. What happens when you got the guys out there who just basically freeze on the mound because they can't figure out which pitch to throw or what arm angle to pitch it in? Where's the joy? And the no-hitters. You know what I'm talking about. The, the Brian Kinney of who threw out a pitch at Tampa Bay. And, of course, he would love to go into Tampa Bay to do that because they're the ones who – they're the forefront of the opener. Brian Kinney is a guy – who says that no-hitters don't excite him, that he's not liable just to keep watching just because it's a no-hitter. What true baseball fan won't watch a no-hitter? Brian Kenny, this will tell you all you need to know about him, and he does know a lot about baseball, and he's a very good broadcaster, but this will tell you all you need to know about him. Brian Kenny gets more excited about the opener than he does a no-hitter. And I don't mean opening day. I mean the opener where you have some no-name from the bullpen starting instead of, well, I don't know, would you go to the game to see the no-name from the bullpen or would you go to see Greg Maddox or Randy Johnson or Walter Johnson or Tom Seaver or Bob Gibson? That's who you go to see games. You go to see who the starting pitchers are. Let's not uh, change the game to the point where it's not love. The numbers nerds are changing the game, and it's not always for the best. And I'm, I'm not the old guy screaming, get off my lawn. I mean, I was looking at numbers back in the 1980s when I was bored during Braves games when they were losing 100 games a season. And you had nothing else to do in the press box but play with the numbers. But I'm telling you, Brian Kenny and his ilk don't love the game of baseball. They love the numbers the game of baseball generates. The game is just superfluous. Get it over with so I can start playing with the numbers. In fact, they're playing it during the game, probably not even watching it too well. Okay, subject number three. Andrew Simon on MLB.com pointed this out. Today, Tuesday, April 23rd, marks the 20th anniversary of the night that Cardinals third baseman Fernando Tatis 
pummeled two grand slams in the same inning at Dodger Stadium. I, I remember that game. Even more astonishingly, he did so off the same pitcher, Chan Ho Park. Nobody had hit two slams in the same inning before in a major league game, and nobody has done it since. And it's quite possible, probable maybe, that nobody will ever do it again. Now, someday soon, Tatis might be best known as the father of Fernando Tatis Jr., who uh, was less than four months old at the time Daddy did what he did. The Padres' opening day shortstop has posted a 9.54 OPS so far. Well, back then, the date was April 23rd of 1999. 46,000-plus fans packed Dodger Stadium on a cool Friday night. Now, uh, Mr. Tatis had done pretty well up to that point. He had four home runs in the young season and 11 RBIs. He was just 24 years old, was batting cleanup. He was a good, uh, he was fun to watch hit. Park, the right-hander, had come over from South Korea and established himself as the key part of the L.A. rotation. Back in 98, he posted a solid 3.71 earned run average. His rate of 0.65 homers allowed per nine innings was 10th lowest of the 96 qualified MLB pitchers. Well, two singles and a hit batter loaded the bases with no outs for Tatis, who then crushed a no-doubt slam to the back of the left-field bullpen. Remember, this is back when Dodger Stadium didn't give up a lot of home runs. They seem to give up more now. A lot had to happen for Tatis to get another chance, and, well, a lot happened. One out later, Eli Marrero homered. After consecutive walks, Cardinals pitcher Jose Jimenez, my name is Jome Jose Jimenez, tried to sacrifice Bunt, but Park wasn't able to get the force at third, loading the bases. Darren Bragg then hit a ground ball to first baseman Eric Karras, whose throw home was ruled to have pulled catcher Todd Hundley off the bag for an error. Edgar Renteria's ensuing RBI single brought home one run, and McGuire, Martin McGuire, flew out, with third base coach Renee Leachman holding the pitcher Jimenez at third on both plays. That series of events set the stage for Tatis to come back up with the bases full and set St. Louis leading 7-2. I'm sure Letchman didn't do that on purpose. Park had already thrown 81 pitches, including 42 in the inning. Yet nobody on the Dodger staff came out to get him. Manager Davey Johnson was ejected earlier after disputing the call at home three batters earlier. Now, Tatis worked the count full. Park, no doubt, running on fumes at that point, hung a breaking ball in his 87th and final pitch. Tatis smacked it into the seats beyond left center field. Now, hitting two slams in a single inning is a difficult task, uh, but a deep dive into the numbers shows just how f- that far-fetched that feat is. Let's look at this. According to Baseball Reference, there have been nearly 3.9 million innings pitched over 144 seasons of Major League history, and in only one of those has the same player hit two slams, but even that may undersell the difficulty. MLB.com senior data architect Tom Tango, what a name, Tom Tango, dug into the numbers which show the following. Take a typical power-hitting cleanup batter who hits 30 home runs in a full season. That's 600 plate appearances. That cleanup batter gets to the plate in the first inning 62% of the time, and 1.7% of those plate appearances come with the bases loaded. Just 5% of those chances result in a homer. Now comes the hard part. They said there'd be no math. Even once the first slam is done, our hitter stands just a 1.5% chance of getting up to the plate again that inning. In this scenario, 21% of plate appearances would have the bases loaded, but once again, the home run occurs 5% of the time. The end result of all of this, mind-boggling odds of 12 million to 1 for this particular scenario to come to fruition. 
So how has this played out since Tatis' big night? In that time, there have been more than 850,000 half innings played in the major leagues. In just 68 of those, has a player even gotten up to the plate with the bases loaded multiple times? According to research conducted by MLB.com research analyst Jason Bernard, in four of those instances, multiple players from the same team got that opportunity. So out of those 68 rare half innings over 20 years, there were only two in which the player launched a grand slam the first time, giving him a chance to match Tatis. In fact, this scenario has occurred just nine times on record, Tatis included. Amazingly, the same player, Carl Ferrillo, did it twice against the same team three years apart. I got to take a little, little drink here. Tonight is Sing Tao Chinese beer. Mm-mm. That's good stuff. Anyway, here are the players to hit a grand slam, then come up with the bases loaded later in the same inning. Raul Ibanez for the Mariners back in 2008. What did he do against the Twins? He singled. Bobby Abreu of the Phillies in 2003 at the Cubs, sack fly. Fernando Tatis of the Cardinals, he hit the grand slam back in 99. But going back a bit, Rick Reichardt of the Angels in 1967, Against the Indians, he flew out. Bill White of the Cardinals in 63 against the Dodgers, struck out. Ferrello, both times with the Dodgers in 55 and 52 against the Reds, the same team. He flew out and he struck out. Joe Astroth of the A's back in 1950. These are the um, Kansas City or Philadelphia A's, I'm not quite sure. At the Senators, he singled. And Nick Etten of the Yankees back in 1946 against the Indians hit into a double play. That's how rare it is. Of those nine examples, Tatis was the only one to face the same opponent in both plate appearances. And there's good reason for that. In order for a pitcher to start an inning and then allow multiple grand slams to the same player, he must face a minimum of 13 batters. Going back to 2010, there have been only 16 times when a pitcher has faced 12 batters in the same inning. and just five of those did the pitcher survive to face a 13th hitter, with the most recent being the Phillies' David Buchanan against the D-backs more than three years ago in 2015. Even in a blowout, it's difficult to imagine another pitcher being left in with the bases loaded to face that 13th hitter, someone who already hit a grand slam in the inning. That's why Chen Ho Park's record appears to be even more untouchable than Fernando Tatis. You know, right after I said uh, we weren't going to do a lot of numbers, I did the most numbers I've ever done in this podcast. Yes, you can thank me later. Uh, here's the issue number three or four. I've lost count. <laughs> I'm not good at numbers. Adrian Garo has written this for MLB.com. For Earth Day on Monday, that was yesterday. I like Earth Day better than Earth Day. The Oakland A's welcome back an old friend, And now he's Nashville-based singer-songwriter Barry Zito as a special guest for his former team's game against the Rangers. Okay, that's all good, but then it turned bad. Referring to Zito in his current musical form rather than the longtime pitcher, it's important because the lefty was returning to Oakland Coliseum to lend his vocals for the national anthem. That's right. But Barry and the A's have a twist. All in the name of raising awareness. Oh, they are so woke out there about energy conservation. Zito's anthem rendition, delivered from the press box, came without microphones or speakers in the name of energy efficiency. And to say it sounded a little off, it did. I'll give you my my impression. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's earth? Okay, I'm not going to bore you with the whole thing. That's what it sounded like. I'm not making it up. Look it up. 
It was despicable. That's the Star Spangled Banner, baby. Lean out like Harry Carey used to do in Wrigley Field and yell at the crowd and get everybody singing along with you. But it basically, Barry Zito, who was supposed to be a singer-songwriter, basically mumbled his way through the Star Spangled Banner. If you're not going to do it right, bud, don't do it. Sit the blank down and don't do it. Oh, wait a minute. This is a podcast. Sit the fuck down and don't sing the national anthem if you're not going to do it right. If you're not going to do it with gusto, if you're not going to give it your best. I know you may not like the song. It's hard to sing, blah, 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 all the excuses. You may like God Bless America more, except when Kate Smith says it. Because remember, we're woke here. It's Oakland. Anyway. The A's also powered down their LED lighting in the stadium video board, so you probably couldn't even see the boards out there. All in the name. Basically, they're Luddites. You can look that up too, kids. They want to turn this back to the 5th century. I don't know. They don't, they don't want airplanes to fly anymore. They don't want to build skyscrapers anymore. And they don't want to use microphones and PA systems. You know how much energy a microphone uses? Very Anyway, uh, more to the injuries here. The Reds have placed left fielder Matt Kemp on the 10-day IL uh, today with a broken rib. To take his place on the roster, outfielder Philip Irvin was recalled from AAA Louisville. Kemp was injured during the third inning of Sunday's loss to the Padres when he collided with the wall trying to catch a drive hit by Will Myers. He left the game the following inning. You'd think with all the padding he's put back on that he'd be able to bounce right off. Bumbles bounce, but obviously not this time. Mark Bowman of MLB.com tweeted this out. From MLB Network's research team, according to StatCast, 54% of batted balls by Josh Donaldson, the Braves' third baseman this year, have had an exit velocity of at least 95 miles per hour. His highest hard hit rate over the last five years, including the 2015 American League Most Valuable Player season. And of course, Donaldson smashed uh, two home runs on, I believe, Sunday against the Indians up in Cleveland. Well, forget spin rates and velocity and radar guns. Orioles catcher Jesus Sucre basically showed you don't need any of that stuff. Pitching in the ninth inning of the O's 12-2 loss Monday night, Sucre relied exclusively on soft stuff to retire the top of the White Sox's lineup in order, and this was a red-hot White Sox lineup. The 30-year-old backstop needed just nine pitches. No, it was not an immaculate inning, but just nine pitches to set down Lurie Garcia, Yoan Mancata, who's got off to a great start, and all-star Jose Abreu, who had combined to go 5-for-13 with a home run and 5 RB through the first eight innings. Sucre induced infield grounders from Garcia and Mancata, then got Abreu to fly out to right field to end the frame. MLB StatCast classified all of Sucre's pitches as breaking balls, mainly because they didn't break because gravity got a hold of them because they were so slow. After the game, the veteran catcher revealed that eight of the nine pitches he threw were fastballs. <laughs> it's more easy for the hitters to hit you if you throw harder, said Sucre. By the way, this is the sixth time he's gotten on the mound. Uh, Previously, his fastball had been clocked as high as 90 miles per hour. Not this time. If you don't throw hard, it's going to be hard for the hitters. Against the White Sox, Sucre's hardest pitch checked in at just 69 miles per hour. His softest outing from his curveball, the only one he threw, 53.6 mile per hour spinner that he threw to Mankata. Mm-hmm. Uh, For the first time in his pro career, uh, Angels outfitter Peter Borjos played the infield. 
And by golly, he looked like he'd been there before. Borjos pulled off the web gym wizardry in the top of the 13th inning last night, or should I say early Tuesday morning. In fact, I even went to bed, and I usually stay up for these things. Uh, They lost in uh, 14 innings to the Yankees, the Angels did. Borjos was playing second base for the first time ever, dove to his left to stop a hard-hit ground ball from the pretty fast Yankees outfielder Brett Cardner, and uh, basically threw him out. And everybody went nuts with a few people that were still there. Even the opponents, the Yankees, were impressed. Aaron Boone, the manager, said, first of all, to get to it, you got to knock it down. And I thought for sure, like, how's he going to be able to know how to make that touch throw? And he did. Tough play. And Boone, you know, he was an infielder for a long time. In the 14th inning, with L.A. trailing by a run, they're still the California Angels to me, starting pitcher Trevor Cahill came out to pinch hit uh, he marked the first time an Angels pitcher at pinch hit in an American League game since the designated hitter was adopted back in 1973. Cahill fouled two pitches off Yankees reliever Jonathan Holder, then struck out swinging to end the game. And that's how long it went and how many players they had used. In fact, one of the players that had been hurt had to leave the game. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was Cots um, Kozart. Kozar, yeah, Kozar, sliding back into second base, hurt his uh, neck and had to leave the game. Nick Birdie's combination of grit and resilience and a fastball that touched triple digits helped the Pirates reliever carve out a spot in the big leagues less than two years coming off Tommy John surgery on his right pitching arm. But just one innocent-looking pitch last night to Arizona's Jared Dyson likely has signaled another bad turn in his roller coaster career. The Diamondbacks won the game 12-4. The 26-year-old Birdie, the uh, former big-time prospect in Minnesota, who's pretty much found new life in Pittsburgh, threw a 96-mile-per-hour fastball in the eighth inning and then fell to the ground like he'd been shot. He grabbed his right arm and started writhing around on the ground, and it was hard to watch. It reminded me of the old day. Was it Dave Durecki whose arm broke when he threw a pitch and everything? Well, basically, he, he started weeping while he was sitting there on the mound, and you just felt bad for the guy because you knew he was in really a lot of pain. Birdie had struck out 17 over eight and a third innings prior to the game, making the Pirates out of spring training. And uh, he had given up three straight singles to start the eighth before his second pitch to Dyson basically uh, might have ended his season, hopefully not his career. Also, Nason Ivaldi has surgery. That's right. 16 or six weeks he'll be gone, hopefully. Red Sox starting pitcher Ivaldi had elbow surgery uh, today to remove a loose body in his right elbow. Uh, must have been a contortionist. Manager Alex Cora said the surgery went well, and the Red Sox said in a statement that Ivaldi is expected to make a full return to pitching within six weeks. So that's pretty good. Uh, Hector Velasquez uh, will be starting against the Tigers today and is going to take Evaldi's spot in the rotation for now. Now, Evaldi had similar surgery last season with Tampa Bay, and he missed two months. He's 29 years old, said he knew something was wrong when he couldn't straighten his arm out during the team's off day in Tampa Bay. He had signed a four-year, $68 million deal in December with Boston, and so far the hard-throwing righty has a six ERA and four starts allowing 14 runs and 21 innings pitch, striking out 16 and walking 11. Okay, here we go. Here's a little fun um, inside part of the podcast of Holy Crap at Sports I'm going to give you here. I have this date in history ready to go. Unfortunately, I've left it on the couch, which is about 10 feet away. So hold on a second. And, in fact, take another swig of the Singtao beer that you, I'm sure, are slugging along at home with me as I walk over to the couch or run over to it. Pick up this day in baseball history, and here we are once again back. In fact, 
That took so much out of me. I think I broke my chair. Anyway, no, I haven't gained weight. Take another drink of the Sing Tao. Mm-mm. That's good stuff. All right. You know, you don't get this except in live radio. On this date, baseball history, April 23rd, 1921. Warren Spahn is born in Buffalo, New York. The future Hall of Fame Southpaw, a mainstay with the Braves in the 1950s, is named after Warren G. Hardy, a right-hander who was recently sworn in as President of the United States. That's right, Warren G. What did the G stand for? Gamaliel. Yeah, it's in the Bible. I bet uh, Warren was glad that uh, his parents, Mom, Pa, Spahn, uh, named him Warren instead of Gamaliel. On this day, 1952, giant reliever Hoyt Wilhelm homers in his first major league at-bat. A fourth-inning blast off a pitcher in the team's win over Boston at the Polo Grounds. During the next 21 years, and by the way, that's New York Giants and Boston Braves. During the next 21 years, covering 1,070 games and 432 official at-bats, the knuckleballing future Hall of Famer will never homer again. By the way, uh, the pitcher he hit that first homer off of, his only home run, his name was Dick. Dick Hoover. Insert your own jokes here. On this day in 1954 at Bush Stadium, Hank Aaron hits the first of his 755 career home runs in his seventh major league game. The Milwaukee Outfitters' sixth inning solo round tripper came on a pitch thrown by Cardinal right-hander Vic Rashi and the Braves' 7-6 extra inning victory in St. Louis. Did I say 755? We all know that Hank Aaron has 756 home runs. What's that, you say? Well, I still count the one that that um, brat, Tim McCarver, who was catching, once pointed out to the umpire, he was out of the batter's box. So they uh, called back a home run that Hank Aaron hit. That's Tim McCarver for you. On this day in 1964 at Colt Stadium in Houston, Ken Johnson becomes the first pitcher to lose a nine-inning no-hitter when the Reds beat the Colt 45s 1-0. Here's how it happened. Pete Rose, attempting to bunt, reached second on a throwing error by the pitcher. He scored the game's lone run in the top of the ninth when Nellie Fox boots Veda Pinson's two-out ground ball to second base. There's some real cool names in that one. On this day, 1969, the Boston fans at Fenway Park warmly welcome back team legend Ted Williams when he emerges from the visitors' dugout to exchange lineups with the umps. At home plate, the new Washington Senators manager shakes hands with Red Sox coach and dear friend Bobby Doerr, much to the delight of the crowd. Why did he and Bobby get along? Because they liked fishing. On this day in 1999, Fernando Tatis, I mentioned this earlier, the only player in baseball history to hit two grand slams in one inning. On the state in 2000, the Dodgers sweep the Reds to notch their 1,000th win over the Red Legs, baseball's oldest professional franchise. Since 1970, L.A. is the only National League franchise to play over 500 ball in Cincinnati, and that's at Riverfront Stadium or Synergy Field. They're 120 and 115. On the state in 2007, riding as a passenger in a car near San Francisco, 73-year-old Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Halberstam dies in an auto accident. Great writer. The writer's books covered various topics in American history, including pennant races this summer of 49, the World Series, October of 1964, and ball players who were lifelong friends, teammates, in which he talked about, I believe, uh, Ted Williams and Bobby Doerr among others. 2008 on this date, joining the Giants, the Cubs became the second franchise in Major League history to win 10,000 games, beating the Rockies in a 10-inning contest at Coors Field. Chicago, which has won six in a row, is off to a 15-6 start for only the fourth time in the last century. 
They have, at that point, a 10,000 wins, 9,465 losses, all-time one-loss record. This is back in 2008, during their 122 years of existence in the Windy City. I bet you wouldn't have guessed that, that the Cubs, with all their bad years and bad decades, would have a winning record and be just the second team to get to 10,000, the New York Giants, San Francisco Giants being the first. I think the Braves have joined them since then, and maybe some others as well. On this day in 2013, Atlanta teammates Justin and B.J. Upton both hit home runs in the Braves' 10-2 route of Colorado at Coors Field. The round-trippers mark the 27th time in Major League history that brothers have homered in the same game, but it's only the second time in consecutive at-bats since 1938 when Lloyd and Paul Wayner, big and little poison, went back-to-back for the Pirates. And finally, on this day in 2014, Michael Pineda, due to his effort to get a better grip on the baseball on a chilly spring night at Fenway Park, will be ejected in the second inning for using pine tar after trying to conceal the foreign substance on his neck. The Yankees' right-hander will get a 10-day suspension for using the sticky material, which is usually overlooked by everybody, umpires and opponents alike, when discreetly used, like uh, Gaylord Perry used to, since it does not affect the flight of the ball. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Anyway, that's another Holy Crap in Sports for April 23rd, 2019. And as always, I put in stuff in there that you don't have to just listen to the podcast on this date. You can listen to it weeks later if you want because all kinds of good tidbits in there. My name is Pete Davis, and I try and do this every day, but I won't make it every day, I'm sure, every other day, or try to do that during baseball season. And then when college football season starts, we'll be doing a lot about college football season as well. Looking forward to that. There's some NCAA rules that came down today. Basically, they're changing the overtime rule. Uh, they're not going to do that uh, 25-yard line for all the overtimes. At one po- some point, they're just going to throw their hands up and say, go for the two-point conversion. Let's get this over with uh, for the player's safety. So once again, the wussification of America, I know, whatever. Anyway, you can follow me at Twitter, at Pete Davis one That's the number one, at Pete Davis one and send me uh, cards and letters, Pete Davis one at yahoo.com. And listen to us on The Kimmer Show on Atlanta's Talk 106.7 FM from 3 to 6 p.m. every afternoon, Monday through Friday. And uh, I'm the basically the guy making smart-ass comments there while Kim talks. And uh, I do my sports from 5.15 to 5.25, somewhere in there in that 10-minute area. Uh, every day, Monday through Friday. So everybody, have a lovely evening. Drink up Shriners, and uh, see you soon.